ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Are you somebody who likes to go to a casino? Maybe when you go into the city for a big night out, you're always going to the casino or you figure that that's a, a part of your night out. Or maybe it's something that you only do maybe if you go to Las Vegas, like some people will be doing in the next few weeks or the next week or so with the NRL there. Or I don't know, is it something that is an important part of your life? We'd love to hear from you because we're going to talk about casinos this morning on ABC Radio and you are with Rod Quinn. This is the Overnights program. And it's our talking point this morning. 18 months ago, the Star Casino in Sydney was fined $100 million and was found unsuitable to run a casino. A report released in 2022 accused the Star of serious governance, risk management and cultural failures. The provision of false documents and misleading, untruthful and unethical communications were given to banks and um, the report also criticised them for deceptive and unethical processes and a failure to account for money laundering and counter-terrorism financing risks. Money laundering and counter-terrorism financing risks. Yeah, but they were allowed to continue as a casino. Now there's another inquiry underway, and even though Star says it welcomes that investigation... Yeah, right there's a possibility that the business could be shut down. But that's okay because Sydney already has a second casino, Crown, which took a while to open because of the way that its board and management operated in other states, most notably Western Australia and Victoria. There is a casino or two or three in every Australian state and territory. For some gamblers, It's a place they might want to go when they're on holidays or for a bit of fun on a night out. But for others, they can't keep away and they never come out ahead. Surely the money that they lose, spend, waste might be better spent elsewhere. But casinos aren't going anywhere. They aren't closing down because they lose money. They make plenty of it. And where there's money, there's influence political influence. If there's an upside, I suppose it's the revenue they provide to government in taxes. Billions of dollars for governments to spend. That's money that, well, the government doesn't have to take out of your pocket because many people give it to the casinos willingly. It's a voluntary tax, you might say. We're going to talk about casinos in Australia Uh, this morning. Dr Charles Livingston is a casino researcher. He's been a guest on the program on several occasions. His interest is in gambling and socio-economic disadvantage, but he's also looked at casino regulation in Australia. And Dr Livingston, a very good evening or good morning to you. Welcome to the program. Oh, good morning, Ron. Let's start with the star. What has the star done wrong? Well, as far as I can work out, the regulator has come to the view that they haven't really done what was necessary to change their culture and the way they do business uh, in terms of the special manager. So they had a special manager appointed who is running, basically running the place and who holds a licence at present on their behalf. 
and they've been given a period of time in which to rehabilitate their activities and themselves uh, and uh, you know achieve the conditions necessary for them to get their license back but the regulator has come to the view that they may not have done enough that the culture of the place the way they operate really hasn't been rehabilitated and so they're having a second bell inquiry named after the lawyer who is going to conduct it in order to determine whether or not that is the case and whether they should get their license or whether they should continue to trade uh, under the auspices of a special manager or indeed have their license cancelled. We'll take some calls on this. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is our number, or you can text 0467-922-702. Amber has a question. Hello, Amber. Oh, hello, Rod. How are you? Fine, thanks. What would you like to ask? I'd like to ask why we're having all these inquiries and royal commissions and people are developing all these problems and yet nothing is ever resolved. It seems to go one inquiry after another and royal commission and, and the problem just escalates. All right, Amber. So why is it that we have these inquiries and seemingly nothing happens, not only with Crown and, and Star, well, Star and Crown, but both of them have been found to have been you know, disgra- uh, behaved disgracefully, and yet they're still operating? Yeah, that's a good question, Rod. And I think your call is right. Why, do, why does nothing change? I think you hinted at it in your introduction, I and mean, there's a lot of tax money involved. I think even more important than the tax money, as important as that is, is the fact that uh, these are seen as large sort of shining beacons in most cities and governments that shut them down uh, would not be perceived well. I think that's that's what's behind it. And particularly, you know, given, for example, in, in the case of the Star in Sydney, there are apparently something like 3,000 people employed there and making a, a sort of regulatory action that would throw all of those people suddenly out of work mm. would not be something that most governments would think that was a wise move. No, I totally agree. And I have nothing but sympathy, of course, for the people who work at uh, you know large areas like that. But we've seen in the past factories close, all sorts of mm. things where maybe not 3,000 people, but certainly you know many hundreds of people, maybe 1,000 people lose their job all at once. Yep. And uh, would it be something like that? Well, something like that is, you know, it's a big ask for a lot of governments to sort of suddenly throw 3,000 people out of work. Look, I'm not going to defend them. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm just a staunch critic. My view is that the... Uh, the industry is seen as somehow too big to fail. It's a sort of emblematic industry. Governments go after casinos. They think they're going to somehow produce a magic pudding of tourist revenue and um, employment and so on. And that shutting them down would be seen as a major failure by a government. Now, what that means is that the casinos, unfortunately, have developed a culture where they think they can get away with everything. And that's certainly what happened with Crown and the Star. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, you're talking about money laundering, but we also have to consider that one of their key business practices has been the exploitation of vulnerable people. And that came out particularly in the case of Crown Melbourne where the Royal Commission has said that it was, you know, amongst the most egregious things you'd ever seen, the way they treated people who became addicted to gambling. So I think, you know, there's a combination of factors here, but 
they do have political influence. I mean, most of them have boards which were carefully chosen yes. by, uh, by their the owners. Former to politicians make... on the... Correct. And, you know, not just former politicians, but former government ministers, yes. very well-connected people, a former head of the AFL in the case of Crown, uh, former head of the uh, Department of Health. You know, those sorts of people have very good connections and that's part of the reason that they've been able to do what they have been able to do and get away with it for a long period of time. To me, it's a little bit like the gun lobby in America. Is there? There's obviously a problem. Why aren't the casinos, let's talk about that, why aren't they out front in doing something about problem gamblers? They are going to earn billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in profit anyway. They should look after their clients, surely. Yeah, the problem is that most of their money comes from those people. I mean, the, the estimates vary, but it's almost certain that most of the money that goes into casinos and gambling generally comes from people who are addicted. And if they shut out those clients, then they end up in a diabolical situation. And that's what's happened with Crown, for example. I mean, I would assert that the, the business model of Crown and the Star until the Royal Commissions was firstly money laundering and uh, the uh, cultivation of international criminal gangs in the case of both of them, uh, largely China-based, etc., and the exploitation of vulnerable people. Now, if you cut off those two streams of revenue, they start to struggle. And Crown, I think, lost $700 million last year on the back of that. And uh, we can't have casinos losing money. Uh, <laughs> has any casino ever lost a licence in Australia? No, and I think this is a problem. If, if we were serious about really enforcing the regulations and the law, then they would have either had their licence suspended for a significant period of time or be shut down entirely or have it taken off them and offered to the next highest bidder. So I think the problem is that they know that the regulators haven't been serious up until this point. And even with this latest STAR inquiry, I would have thought if the regulator was unsatisfied as to their progress, they could simply say, well, we're going to take the licence off you. And the fact that the special manager is holding the licence means that they wouldn't necessarily have to shut. Right. Uh, the problem is, of course, still that the company that owns, is, owns the business is still getting the money from them. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's probably a number of companies around the world that would be quite happy to take it over and make profit. Uh, and you know, put up with the conditions that were imposed on them, but we, we simply don't seem to be capable of making that uh, that okay. difficult decision. So let me put it to you this way. Uh, the government, why don't they take it over? Why doesn't the government run a casino? If they're so, you know, they, they, they're so profitable, uh, they can uh, make it clean then. I mean, they've run gambling enterprises in the past before they sold mm. them off, you know, the TAB and things like that. Yeah. Uh, why doesn't the government take over a casino, have a government-run casino, and then see how they go? Well, I'm, you know, I, I can't see why they wouldn't. It certainly happens in other countries. There are a number of countries around the world, including Canada, most of the Nordic countries and so on, where the government actually owns and operates the gambling enterprises, including casinos, and where, generally speaking, they have a better record, a better track record than has been the case in Australia. Uh, we don't seem to have the appetite for doing that. In fact, we've been doing the opposite in Australia. We've been shedding government-owned enterprises for a number of years, and 
I think it, yeah. it's it would be unusual to see an Australian government make that decision. Having said that, though, I mean, sometimes you've got to think, well, what else is there? I think if the star fails this latest hurdle, then that may be one of the key options for the government for at least for a period of time through its special manager to just take over the operations and reap the benefits such as they are. Mm. Well, we'll get back to that in a moment. Kevin is with us. Good morning, Kevin. How are you, Rod? All right? Yes, very well. Do you want to talk about poker machines? Yes, um, I stay away from... Uh, yeah, my mate uh, in the 70s and 80s, she used to work for Aristocrat, who's the main one who disposes yep, of poker uh, machines. Poker machines. Yeah. And he, how he said, once a club gets its revenue in the last three or four days uh, before a poker machine will uh, come out, they, they're rigged. What, do you re- ever remember those uh, syndicate that was in Australia and um, used to have a certain way of pulling the handle? No, I don't know, Kevin. But hang on, I'll get Charles to talk about that. Kevin, thanks very much. Okay, so most of the profits, it seems, from these casino uh, casinos come from poker machines. Is that the case? They don't come from the roulette wheel or the blackjack tables or anything like that. Yes, so the basis of most casino revenue is what they charmingly call in the trade the grind. So those are the people who come in with modest amounts of money and largely use slot machines, poker machines in our case in Australia. And that's true around the world. And if you look at the floors, the main floors of all of our casinos in Australia, they're just completely full of poker machines and they make a lot of money because generally they're unrestricted in casinos as compared to the ones that are available in clubs and pubs. You know, so in New South Wales, as you know, you can put $10 in a poker machine, uh, you can bet $10 a spin, etc. But on the unlimited machines, you can bet many multiples of that, you know, often hundreds of dollars in some cases. So they make a lot of money and they're also fleecing ordinary people, I guess you could say. They're not high rollers by any stretch of the imagination. Now, the proportion of money that comes from those people varies, but it's it's safe to say that that's the backbone of the business. About 60% and, or more comes well, from... Well, in some cases, that's yeah. right. So, I mean, in the case, say, of the Tasmanian casinos, 90% or more of their revenue comes from the slot machines, the poker machines. Is that because they didn't have poker machines before Rest Point opened? Uh, well, no, I think it's like mainly because they're extremely good at fleecing people of their money. And you've got to, one of the things you got to remember is that there was a time, I guess, in Australia where casinos were valuable tourist destinations. That is, people would go out of their way to go and visit one. I think that day has well and truly passed now. And what you're seeing is that most of the people who, overwhelmingly most of the people who go to casinos in Australia tend to be the locals and that's certainly the case in Tassie and almost certainly the case in the rest of the casinos around the country as well. So those people don't have the big dollars and the poker machines are very addictive and unfortunately for many people, that's where they end up putting most of their money and that's why they're so profitable. Dr Charles Livingston is our guest, our Head of Gambling and Social Determinants Unit at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. Who owns Australia's casinos? 
Oh, well, at the moment, um, an American equity company, you know, Blackstone, private equity company, Blackstone's owns Crown. The Star is owned by a, you know, a company with ownership all over the world. I, I think the, uh, by and large, they're not particularly homegrown entities anymore. They used to be a little bit, I guess you could say, uh, Australian-themed. I mean, the Packers owned Crown for many years. In Tasmania, the federal group owns the two casinos, and that's a Sydney-based family company, uh, and so on around the country. So it's it's you know they're not particularly dinky die, if I can put it that way. They're they're uh, you know Blackstones is one of the I think it's the biggest equity private equity company in the world. I suspect they might be regretting their investment in Crown at this point, but anyway and. Uh, so, you know, they're large international companies. Gambling is a massive multinational uh, business at the moment. And if you look, for example, at the wagering companies, uh, one of the biggest operators uh, in the wagering sector, in fact, probably the biggest now, is a British-based company, uh, which competes with Tabcorp, which is an Australian company. But, you know, essentially these are large multinational corporations and they're not particularly homegrown. Is there any limit to the number of casinos you can operate or own in Australia? I mean, if you wanted to buy up all of them, there are more than 20, I think. Yes. Uh, could you do that? Well, you'd have to have a lot of money. <laughs> um, the, the, the states and territories have their own limits on how many casinos they can have. I mean, you've got to remember gambling is not regulated federally in Australia. It's regulated at a state level. Mm. And that brings up many problems. And so we end up seeing all these commissions and inquiries because each state has to do its own due diligence, so to speak, in order to keep on top of this. And it's a sort of an archaic way to regulate a big multinational industry, I think. And trying to keep on top of all of the ins and outs of it can be very difficult, especially for the smaller states where the amount of effort they have to put into regulating these businesses is quite quite remarkable. And that's, you know, for example, one of the big problems in Australia with wagering is that most of the online wagering companies are registered and licensed in the Northern Territory, which, as you know and your listeners know, is a very small jurisdiction and it really doesn't have the resources. And so you know, the reason that the book is a license there is because it's firstly a low taxing regime and secondly, um, it's generally regarded as pretty lax in terms of its regulation and the enforcement of its laws. Mm. Wayne in Oakley says, Crown Melbourne lured foreign high rollers through various enticements. Has this mm. now ceased? I can't imagine that they were alone in that either. No, they all did that and the star in particular was, uh, was, was, was guilty of these connections. I mean, the problem with the foreign high rollers is that mostly, as far as we can gather, uh, they were front people or they were themselves organised criminals and they were laundering money or they were dealing with the proceeds of money that they had misappropriated from their businesses. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons why the Chinese government cracked down on Crown's efforts at securing the custom of these folks a few years back. And it was, uh, you know, it was one of the telltale signs that things were going crook when... The uh, the Chinese government arrested, I think, 19 yes. Crown employees in China back in about 2019. And so these junkets, as they're called, they're operated by uh, organised groups of, uh, of people who recruit members of the junket and then 
organise them to come to Australia or wherever to do their gambling and they get a cut of the action, so to speak. And so it's in their interest to make sure that that's a lucrative proposition. Unfortunately, yeah. the sort of people who have that sort of money, the money that makes it attractive, are often connected with organised crime uh, and, you know, the money is not coming from particularly savoury activities. In some cases, they're... I think as Tim Costello once said, these are the worst people in the world and they're engaged in terrible activities. So it was a, it was a pretty egregious sort of activity that the uh, casinos were getting into when they organised these junket operators. And in fact, one of the key junket operators was imprisoned by the Chinese authorities not too long ago. And uh, I don't think they've seen the sunshine for a while since they yeah, were Yeah, but imprisoned. if any other person was convicted in Australia of money laundering they're going to go to jail why isn't it why is it that the casinos aren't uh, or people aren't in jail well you know it was their business model and governments knew that the regulators knew that and the real the real failure here is not that the companies you know were were pursuing these sorts of activities I mean it was terrible enough but the regulators almost certainly knew about it to some extent and did nothing about it and there's a sort of, you know, it falls between the cracks too. I mean, there was the responsibility of Austrac to, to monitor this sort of activity. There was the responsibility of the federal police to enforce it. There's the responsibility of the state police to stop criminal activity infiltrating casinos. And there was the responsibility of the casino regulators to do their business. And each of them appears to have handballed it to the other in a sort of endless circle without anyone taking responsibility. And I think that's largely because, as you hinted in your intro, the state governments were not particularly keen on cracking down on them because they liked the flow of money. It's hundreds of millions of dollars every year in most cases that they didn't have to find anywhere else. Just explain then how the money laundering works. Charles Livingston is our guest from Monash University. So people who misappropriate or got money through illegal means, let's say, I mean, I know it's going to be a lot more, but let's say it's a million dollars. They give yep. it to these people who would bring it to the casino. They're prepared to take a loss, obviously. Um, yep. They put it through, they lose whatever they put it through, pokies or they put it through the, the black uh, blackjack tables or whatever, and they walk away with 800000 or something, and yep. that's it. They're prepared to take that loss. Yeah, so it's a sort of that, you know, a taxing system, if you like. And in some cases, governments appear to at least, you know, put a blind eye to that. So in the case of a poker machine, uh, and we know from the New South Wales Crime Commission report now from about a year or so ago that that's reasonably rife in New South Wales where the machines will accept large amounts of money in one go. So, you know, still about a third of the machines in New South Wales, you can put $10,000 in in one go. So you can walk in and stuff it full of notes and then play it for a minute and then cash out. You get a chit, you take it to the counter and they give you a nice check or they do a direct deposit and it looks as though you've had a big win on the pokies. So that's one way of money laundering. In the case of the casinos, very large sums of money were transferred electronically from overseas into an account. Someone would turn up, uh, claim the account, uh, cash it out into chips. They may play the tables for a while or they may simply wander around the casino, have a drink and then go and cash in the chips and it looks like they've had a big win on the, on the tables. So doing that effectively cleans the money in the sense that you have a trail indicating that the money has something like a legal provenance, even though it's clearly 
not the case. And there's no way, or certainly there was no way previously, of determining whether that money came from, you know, the proceeds of crime or from tax evasion or from misappropriation from a company that you're associated with. And it's still the case. I mean, for example, if you're a tradie and you want to avoid tax, one way of doing that is to get paid cash in hand, go to the local pub, put it in the machine, play for a minute or not even play at all in some cases, cash it out and you get a chit or a cheque that seems to indicate that you have had a lucky day on the machines. I've got to say, though, I mean, I'm no doubt that this goes on all the time, of course, but doesn't it get suspicious when the same people keep winning? Everyone else is losing on these yep. machines, and yet the same people keep winning vast amounts of money? Well, I mean, there's multiple ways around that. The first one is, of course, there are so many venues in Australia, pokey venues, for example, in New South Wales, where you can just, you know, you could probably go to a different one every day and never do more than one. Uh, you n never do the same one in a year. So there's so no records kept of, of large amounts of money won on poker, poker machines? Well, there are, there are records kept about the amounts of money that are, you know, being but not who doled wins out. It but not who wins it, yes. So they're largely anonymised. And, I mean, you know, if, in the case of the tradie that I've just been talking about, I mean, it's in their interest to have a record showing that they had a win, even though it wasn't really a win, uh, at the local club or some pub or other. And, uh, you know, they can show it to the tax office if the tax office gets suspicious. So, you know, the record-keeping is far has been, up to this point, far from adequate. And that's why... The Perrottet government was arguing for what they called the cashless card yeah. prior to the last election, that this was going to, and it would have uh, eliminated many of the avenues that money laundering provided. And it's also the reason why the casinos, the Star and Crown, now operate a similar system. They've been required to implement a pre-commitment system, which ties, well, does two things. Firstly, it allows people to set a limit on how much they want to spend. And secondly, it ties an identity to the amounts of money so that if someone is into the police, for example, are interested in your activities, they can get the records under a warrant and have a look and see uh, how much you've been losing, how much you've been spending, how much you've been gambling, how much you've been cashing out and so on. This is like the old days when someone had a big win at the races <laughs> with a compliant bookie. With a compliant bookie. And, and you know, I mean, indeed... Uh, wagering is still a way, and indeed I think there was a story not long ago about uh, how easy it still is to launder money through the wagering uh, businesses, the electronic businesses, where there are you know reasonable records kept these days, but it, there's so many gambling transactions undertaken through online bookies and even face-to-face -face bookies of the old sort that it's really very hard for the authorities to keep track of, of all mm. this money and a lot of criminal money goes through those sources and is legitimised accordingly. Was wants to know, how do these people come from China and other places with a suitcase full of cash? I thought there were restrictions on bringing cash into the country like that. And is that the same case with people who are transferring it electronically? Yeah, the... Well, I mean, we know from the investigations into Crown, for example, that literally suitcase, well, in one case, Aldi shopping bags full of yes, $100 notes right. were being laundered. And um, I have heard stories that private jets have been used to convey suitcases full of cash. And, 
you know, if you land into Sydney or Melbourne in a private jet, the likelihood of the, of the uh, customs authorities going through your luggage is not high, I'm told. Uh, and of course, you get straight out of the car, get straight straight out of the plane, straight into a car which has been provided courtesy of the casino, and you're in, you know, you're in there in 20 minutes, and the money's uh, inside their coffers quite quickly without scrutiny in many cases. And in the case of the electronic transfers, yes, they do appear to have uh, uh, been able to defeat the law. One way in which they did that was by breaking down the amounts of money that were being transferred into small amounts or smaller amounts. So, as you know, the limit for reporting to Austrac is $10,000. But if you deposit 9900 oh, yeah. multiple times through different accounts, then you evade that particular regulatory principle doesn't look suspicious either um <laughs> well and but you know this is one of the things that made some of the banks start to get a bit wary because they were having uh these sort of massive number of transactions at 9900 seemingly from different accounts but all of which were being credited to a particular gambler's account yeah so if what, I presume this is happening, you know, still happening in Australia, although maybe to a lesser degree, is it happening yeah. in every other casino in the world, or is there are there casinos elsewhere, big, glitzy, glamorous ones, Vegas, for example, that are far more diligent in cracking down on money laundering? I mean, why aren't they doing it in Macau, for example? Uh, I think the problem the problem is it is it's extremely difficult to run a casino and make a lot of money out of it unless you rely on the two streams of revenue that I referred to earlier. The first one is money laundering and the second one is the exploitation of vulnerable people. Now, if you take away those two revenue streams, the profitability of casinos becomes a little bit more marginal. You can still, I mean, I have no doubt you can run a casino profitably without doing either of those things but they tend to be smaller scale. The cleanest casinos in the world are probably the European casinos, which are in some cases government owned, and they apply quite extreme measures to make sure people are not spending money they don't have and that they are not associated with criminal activity. And indeed, in Switzerland, which as we know is a sort of bastion of financial privacy, if you turn up at the casino more regularly than they think appropriate. The casino operators are bound by law to approach you and require you to demonstrate the source of the money and to make sure that it's not inflicting hardship on your family. That's Switzerland. Uh, what about somewhere like Monaco? Monaco, well, again, it's the same sort of business. They're, um, they're not glitzy. They're, you know, I guess you would say they're, they're more elevated in the sense that... More like a gentleman's club than a glitzy well, area. I don't know whether gentlemen's clubs are quite quite the exact analogy okay. I would use, but they are they are places where they make sure they know you and that you have the money to spend and it doesn't come from crime. And, you know, they're, they're much more strictly regulated than, okay. than in Australia. You, you know, I mean, you can't just walk into any of these places. For example, in, um, in Finland, before you can spend a cent in the casino, you have to register, you have to prove who you are, uh, you have to demonstrate that you have the means to gamble, and only then, once you've got a membership card, will they let you onto the floor. Uh, whereas in most casinos in Australia, you simply walk in and start putting your money into a machine or on a table. 
Dr. Charles Livingston is with us from Monash University. Colin wants to know or wants you to comment on online gambling and if it's possible yeah. to regulate online gambling. Yes, possible. I mean, what we've got in Australia is probably um, a system of regulation which is better than terrestrial gambling, the pokies and so on. Um, we have we have a number of problems in Australia about online gambling. The first one is that we have, as I said earlier, multiple territories and states that run the show and each have their own sets of regulations and so on. What the federal government has done, however, over a period of time is to impose what's been called a um, national consumer protection system. And that has a number of safeguards in it, which means that uh, the regulation of online gambling in Australia is probably better, as I said, than terrestrial gambling. And the states have sort of begrudgingly been drag kicking and screaming to apply these principles. So that means the bookies are no longer permitted to uh, provide you with credit, which they used to do in an unregulated way because they weren't charging interest on it. They're no longer allowed to offer you inducements unless you have an account with them. Uh, and most recently, they've all been obliged to sign up to a system called BetStop which allows people to exclude themselves uh, from gambling opportunities uh, for as long as they like and which has had 18,000 people take it up since it was introduced six months ago. Yeah. So I think it's absolutely possible to regulate online gambling. I think perhaps your listener is querying whether it's possible to regulate offshore yes. providers and that's difficult. There's no question of that, but <clears throat> there are ways around that. One of them is VPN uh, sorry, well, VPN is used to avoid regulation, but it is still possible to block the sites and make them difficult to get to. In Again, in the Nordic countries, which have taken the lead in this, they have been successful in getting the banks to block transactions. So uh, they block them both ways. So transferring money to one of these operations can be blocked and transferring any winnings that you might have, which is unlikely <laughs> but does occasionally occur, yeah. uh, has also been blocked. And that's been very effective and in in Finland and in uh, Norway they've uh, managed to block advertising from offshore sites which was very prolific for a yes. long time. Uh, so the question is if there are all these ways of making it a better uh, system for everybody except I suppose for the money launderers and the yeah. people like that. Why is it that Australian governments are so reluctant to do that? They must know that there is, you know, there's not enough pressure coming from uh, the, uh, the the voters, I suppose. It's never yeah. an issue at election. There's money coming, I'm sure, from the casino operators. They're donating, I'm sure, to, uh, um, to political parties. But yeah. they must know that people want some action on this issue, but they're just reluctant to do it. Well, I think it boils down to money. It boils down to what we call the corporate political activities of these people. As you said, they're big donors. The, the club sector, the hotel sector and the casino sector have all been conspicuously large donors to political parties over a long period of time. They are operated by people with extremely good connections in the political world and indeed in many cases former politicians and former bureaucrats with significant contacts uh, and they have the ability to make sure that governments do what they want. As we know in Australia we have a very 
unregulated system of political lobbying and these large corporates spend a lot of time and effort on making sure that they're in the good books of governments. They're contributing, as you said, hundreds of millions, in many cases billions of dollars to state revenue. Uh, There used to be a saying, I think Mr Keating was responsible for it, saying that you shouldn't get between a state treasurer and a bucket of money and that is part of the problem. Uh, And even though the crimes and the misdemeanours that they've committed are quite egregious, what we end up with is a system where it's simply too hard for a politician to do anything serious about it. And that seems to be the case in most Australian jurisdictions. I can't recall, and maybe I'm not noticing it, an ad, a commercial for a casino on TV. Maybe they're at the movies, I don't know. Maybe they're on commercial radio, I don't know, I don't really listen. Where and how do they advertise? Is it mostly by sponsoring sporting teams, sporting events like big race days and, and uh, you know other sporting events, or you know awards programs? You find quite often that the the logies will be on at a casino, or the actor awards might be on at a casino. That is that how they advertise? Is it all sort of? Uh, it's it's not overt. It's a bit more covert than that. Uh, they're allowed to advertise, but they're not allowed to advertise their gambling services, if I can put it that way. So, you know, there are many ads for Crown on television, often associated with sporting events, but they don't talk about their gambling. They talk about being a world of entertainment or something like that. Um, the sponsorship of sporting teams is a big part of their self-promotion. The fact that, for example, the Walkley Awards have traditionally been held at Crown Casino or a place like that, means that they get a lot of attention. The large sporting awards, the Brownlow Medal for the AFL Best Player of the Year has been traditionally held at Crown in Melbourne and so on. So they get a lot of publicity from that. They get a lot of quote-unquote goodwill uh, and is regarded as being a, a sort of a classy place to have your awards night or to go out. So yes, you're right, they get that. But I mean, if you... If you if you sort of look at the places where they tend to be located, it's very hard to avoid them, and everybody who wants to gamble knows where they are. I mean, Barangaroo uh, was built in order to have a sort of striking location for their casino. The Star is right in the middle of the entertainment precinct in Sydney. Crown is right on the river in the middle of Melbourne. And this new casino that's going up in Brisbane is going to dominate uh, the waterfront of the city and, you know, in a fairly, in my opinion, unpleasant way. And so, you know, these are very conspicuous locations. Um, everyone knows where they are and everyone knows what goes on there. And you don't have to do a lot of promotion for it, to, you know, for word of mouth to tell people this is where you go if you want to spend a lot of money and have a quote-unquote big night out. How did COVID affect the casino industry in Australia? Well, the terrestrial gambling industry effectively shut down for a period of time. It varied between the states, and so we saw a decline in the amount of money that was going, particularly through poker machines and other terrestrial forms of gambling. Uh, The wagering industry grew quite dramatically over that period. Excuse me. (coughs) And... uh, you know, it wasn't that people simply transferred their expenditure from the casinos and the poker machines to uh, wagering, but people who already had wagering accounts uh, tended to increase how much they spent and a you know a proportion of the population picked it up. So what we saw was a fairly substantial growth in online gambling. 
and a diminution for a period of time on terrestrial gambling. Since the end of the restrictions, however, what we've seen is fairly substantial growth again on terrestrial gambling, particularly on poker machines, and that slowed down now, but in the, the year, first year or so after the restrictions were eased, we saw very significant growth in poker machine gambling in particular. There is... Well, there are you know casinos in every state uh, and territory in Australia. Yep. There, I'm not sure you tell me about whether pokies are in every state and territory uh, of Australia, um, in pubs and clubs. I know some more than others. With a pub and a club, maybe maybe they're subsidising the the meals there, the restaurants there, the the other services that those pubs and clubs, or certainly the clubs, provide. Is that the case with the casinos? Do you think that the um, the money that's, that's rolling in, uh, does that subsidise the restaurants and, and the other things that are at these places? Yeah, generally in casinos, that's not the case. I mean, the, the restaurants and so on tend to be owned and operated by third parties, so they're not uh, necessarily being subsidised. The rents they charge are often quite ex- substantial, as far as I can understand, because they're seen as destination venues people will go there because they think it's a classy place for a big night out and they afford to fork out large sums of money to go to these high-end restaurants and my understanding is still that some of the most expensive restaurants in sydney and melbourne are located in the casinos they're not really being subsidized in clubs and pubs well to answer your first question there are there are poker machines in every state in clubs and pubs except Western Australia and as an incident, incidental uh, fact I can tell you that the gambling harm rate in Western Australia is about half that of the rest of the country as a consequence of that but the uh, the subsidy yes they subsidise food and drink that you know that again is a two-edged sword it means that it makes it very difficult for other businesses to operate in that environment whether at large clubs and pubs operating uh, and it also means that it's a, an inducement for people to go there, and when they're there, they end up spending a lot of money on poker machines. So the subsidy um, only really works if you stay away from the machines, and unfortunately, lots of people don't. So the redistribution of funds from poker machines is not particularly progressive. That is, it doesn't really go towards community benefits. And if you look at the pattern of expenditure, in the case of Sydney, the biggest per capita expenditure is in areas like Blacktown and Fairfield, which are very disadvantaged areas. They're sort of areas where people are, generally speaking, doing it tough, but they often have, well, they do have the largest concentration of machines and the highest levels of per capita expenditure in the country. They don't have a casino there yet, though, do they? Uh, well, they they have pretty much the same thing. I mean, if you look at um, some of the clubs yeah, in Sydney, they're, yeah. yes, there are hundreds of machines, and they've also got electronic table games. They're allowed to operate really? electronic versions of the casino table games, which have bet limits of a hundred dollars per spin. So, effectively, they are casinos. Mm. Um, institutions that make a lot of money out of gambling: governments, casinos, clubs, pubs. They constantly report on how much they care about problem gambling. Do you think that's yeah. true? No. <laughs> if you took away, if you took away the, the the expenditure of people who are addicted, 
to gambling, they would lose at least half their revenue. There's no question of that. In Australia, uh, you know, Productivity Commission reported 20 years ago now that 40% of the money that goes through clubs and pubs comes from people in poker machines, comes from people uh, who are addicted, and another 20% comes from people who are pretty much on the same pathway. So what, and that, that's a global phenomenon. I mean, if you look at the collation of data from around the world, it's not unusual for at least half of the revenue that goes through these places to come from people who are addicted. So if they really cared about it, they could do something about it, but they don't. And the best way they could do something about it would be by implementing a pre-commitment system, as I've just been talking about. How would that work? Ago. In your mind, so yeah, so it's 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 not just in my mind. Happily, it's been working in Norway since two thousand and six, and in other countries subsequently. And all you do is you you set up an account system. Remember, all the poker machines in the country and in the state are networked. So state by state, they're operating on a network. And the reason they do that, of course, is to protect the revenue so that the authorities know how much money is going through them. At the moment, they only use it to protect the revenue, but you can beef it up a little and uh, provide people with an account, often based on a card or another identification system. Once you've set up the account, then people can set a limit on how much they want to spend per day, per week, per month. Uh, and it's not hard to do that these days with you know, these sort of networked machines and information technology being what it is. So and there'd be a limit say, on that? Correct. So in the case of Tasmania, they've announced a system to be introduced next year, or the end of this year, in fact, uh, whereby if you uh, if you want to play poker machines, you have to register, set up an account, and you'll be a limit of $100 a day on how much you can lose. $100 a day, $500 a week, $5,000 a year, for example. And that's what they've said in, in Tasmania. Victoria has announced that it's going to set up a similar system, although there's not a timeline on it. It would appear it will be start to be introduced in the second half of the year, but we're not quite sure of that. And the Perite government was introducing a similar system. That has the advantage of curtailing money laundering because there's a track record of who's spending money and where and when and how much. Uh, but it also has a very singular advantage of allowing people who are struggling with their gambling uh, to set a limit on it and to say, well, look, I, sometimes I go to the club and I spend more than I want to. If I set a limit, that means I can't. Now, you know, the critics of the scheme say, oh, yeah, but, you know, problem gamblers, quote, unquote, will simply set silly limits, and some of them will. But it does give people who are struggling with their gambling the opportunity to put a break on it and to say, well, look, I can't afford to lose more than 100 bucks a week, so that's the limit I'll set. Well, that's the limit they set on their card, but surely yep. they just get cash and can go down to the pub and play the pokies there. No, because once you've got a statewide system in place, once you hit your limit, that's it. You can't gamble anymore. But, not, I mean, that's on the card. Can you do it in cash? No, no, no. You you have to use... I uh, have to use a card. What you about if you're betting on the horses or something like that? Yes, well, again, in Norway, they have a system where you can't gamble beyond your limit on any uh, means okay. outside what's done because you still have to identify yourself. And there's no reason why you couldn't implement that system in Australia. Now, most gamblers who are serious about it bet on more than, you know, they use more than one mode of gambling. But getting on top of the poker machine habit in Australia is a major is a major issue. I mean, gambling on poker machines 
is responsible for at least 52% of the harm, the problems that occur in Australia. We spend more than $15 billion a year on poker machines. That's the amount of money people lose. It's, it's a huge amount of money. It's the vast majority of the money that goes into gambling in Australia. How much do they win? <laughs> they don't. I mean, on average, you every time you push a button on a poker machine, the house takes 10% on average of what you've spent. You can't, you simply can't win. The longer you gamble, the less likely you are to come out ahead. And you know, as anyone who uses poker machines will know, it is very difficult to come out ahead. If not impossible, I would argue. What is the story, though, with um, claims that the poker machine must return 85% of the amount that goes into it? Is that right or yeah, not? That's correct, yes. So, I mean, but what that means is that the house edge is 15%. So, it means on average, every time you push the button, it takes 15% of your stake. So, the you know, the 85% return to player ratio, as it's called, is something that confounds many people because the endless numbers of people have asked me, well, if it's an 85% RTP, how come I would never come home with any money? And the answer is because on average, that means the machine takes 15% of your, of your bet every time you push the button. And if you think about it, over a period of time, you might build up a little chest, but you will reinvest that money, so to speak, uh, and lose it. And the machine is inexorable in its ability to take, keep taking that money from you. Is one of the things I was to ask whether one of the attractions for casinos is uh, those games, those table games, maybe not yeah. roulette, but blackjack, or if you play poker there, or any of those games that might have an element of skill rather than luck. Um, that people think that they can, that they're good players, they can actually win that money? Yeah, so the basis for that belief is that uh, the house edge on table games is much less than that on poker machines. So, you know, the, the house edge on a slot machine in a casino is somewhere between 10 and 15%. So that means, every, as I said, every time you push the button, they take 10% on average of your stake. On the tables, it can be much less. So with blackjack, the house edge is somewhere around 1.5%. So if you have the ability to remember which cards are being played, you are in a slightly better position because it allows we know what the odds are likely to be of the next card coming up in your favour or against you. Now, the casinos guard against that by excluding those people they call card counters. So if you have trained your memory to the extent that you can actually remember the, the cards that have fallen and so on and they come to know you they will kick you out and prohibit you from playing games in their casino or they will limit you to low stakes tables so yes there are people who have that ability who can remember the fall of the cards and who can slightly improve their chances enough to uh, make a you know a tidy profit but they're few and far between and uh, the casinos, by and large, kick you out if you end up making yeah. too much money from them. Do you think that if something does happen to the star, that that might be a signal for all the other casinos in Australia to clean up their act? Well, it's a big if. I mean, I think the casinos that haven't cleaned up their act yet um, should be well aware that there could be consequences for it. I mean, not not losing a licence is a, re a really important um signal from the authorities that they're not as serious as they might be, I would argue. 
if the star actually does have its license suspended or cancelled and uh, sold to another party, that would be an extraordinarily important signal to the industry. But I think, you know, globally, the big casinos, the ones that operate in the same principles that the ones in Australia do, they make their money, as I've said before, from the twin lines of money laundering and the exploitation of vulnerable people. And that's particularly the case in Asia and to a certain extent the United States, although they tend to be better regulated there than they are here. Uh, and I think you know, mostly they'll just get on with their business of uh, trying to exploit people and exploit uh, the criminal underworld. How do these people sleep at night? Well, on silk sheets, I expect. I mean, you know, we, we, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a pretty grim business, I think, the gambling industry. And if you look at the harm that it inflicts on the community, uh, it, would, it would be very difficult for you to go away from it with a clean conscience. But there doesn't seem to be any shortage of people that are quite happy to pretend that they're doing good for the community and employing lots of people uh, by ripping off some of the most vulnerable people in our society and I, yeah. I find it a very a, a very egregious business which desperately needs cleaning up. I think it was one of the most sickening things really about the opening of Crown in Sydney was that mm. James Packer went to the then Premier and said he wanted to give Sydney something. He wanted to provide yeah. Sydney with something. Well, I thought, yeah. well, build a university or a library or something like that. <laughs> but no, his idea was... And, you know, the idea that... I don't know the Packers aren't part of it anymore, perhaps, but after seeing his father, I'm sure, lose a whole lot of money over the years at casinos, yeah. I found it fascinating that uh, James Packer felt that that was the gift that he wanted to give Sydney. Well, he, he did famously say that having traipsed around the world's casinos with his dad and saw how much money he lost, he thought, this is a terrific business, I want to get into this one. Yeah. Maybe some way of getting back at his father as well. Who knows? I'm not an amateur psychiatrist. Uh, Charles, thank you very much. Always fascinating hearing what you've got to say, and I appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you very much, Dr. Charles Livingston, the Head of Gambling and Social Determinants Unit at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 